Hey, it's a Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories episode retold. My name is Brian, and these are the episodes where we go back into the archives and grab one that maybe you haven't heard from the back catalog that pertains to something either in the world or something we've been talking about again on the show. And so this week... We have done a few episodes around the Guns N' Roses camp. With uh, We just put one up in uh, January of 2023 about Buckethead and his time in Guns N' Roses and uh, around Chinese democracy. So if you haven't heard that, check it out. But that reminded us that way, way, way back in the beginning of the show, we did an episode about Slash and his encounter with... The Predator. Yes, the, the Predator from the movies. If you've not heard this story, it's quite fascinating, and it takes us all the way back to episode 16, more than 100 episodes ago on the show, when we were still getting our feet wet in this thing. It was October of 2020. Think about where you were, October of 2020. Still waiting on the vax. Uh, still maybe quarantined or partly quarantined, and you know we were just trying to make something fun for people to listen to uh, in between weeks of terror. And uh, this was a, a pretty fun episode to make, and I hope you enjoy it. Uh, so we're revisiting today. We're going all the way back to October of 2020, episode 16 of Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, Slash versus Predator. Enjoy this. You alone could probably write a book about GNR yourself because you're a walking encyclopedia. This is like one of the uh, original things that we used to talk about is Axel and the crew. So there are so many random, crazy rumors and things that you've heard. If you've ever listened to rock and roll in the last 30 years, uh, you have heard some random story about their antics, right? And and it's a lot yeah. of bands, you look up and you're like, I wonder if there's a crazy story about Marshall Tucker Band or whatever, right? And you have to dig around and you can find like one. You look up Guns N' Roses, crazy rock and roll excess, like as your Google search, and you're basically just going to get like 500 pages of stuff, including a bunch yeah. of articles in every major rock and roll publication over the last 20 or 30 years, documenting these things with giant countdown lists. Like they are known, they're kind of like the poster children for rock and roll bedtime stories, uh, at least in terms of stories of excess. So that's... That's crazy. I will say there are a lot of things we're not going to cover on this show. We're not going to do a full try to get in all of the uh, Guns N' Roses stories because that would take like 17 hours to even start to scratch the surface. And, yeah, and we're, right. And we're not going to do an Axel getting in a fight story because there are so many of those. Uh, Axel getting in a fight with David Bowie. Axel getting in a fight with the guy from Thelonious uh, Monster. Axel getting in a fight yeah. with a female cop. Like, all of these things yeah. exist in the universe. We're not going to do that. Axel getting into a fight with all kinds of women that he's sleeping with. Axel getting Absolutely. in a fight with his other bandmates. Yeah, we're just we're going to skip all of those. Um, yeah. Also, by the way, if you've never seen the YouTube video, this is very easy to find and very quick. If you want to see the last performance of Steven Adler before he got fired from Guns N' Roses, type in Guns N' Roses Farm Aid, and they introduce them, and Steven Adler comes out on stage pointing at the crowd, and then he falls into his own kit, and then they get up and they, they play Civil War, and the true story behind that was he'd never rehearsed that song. And you'll see Slash's back is to the audience because he's facing Steven the whole time to sort of show him where the changes are. And he plays it like without a hitch. And then they're like, he's fired because he's on drugs. Well, <laughs> which is some amazing hypocrisy. We're going we're gonna to talk about that. It's really funny that you jumped to Steven Adler because there definitely is a 
GNR's drug and alcohol policy was pretty hypocritical element to this story. So we'll get there. But I will also say that I don't think we'll ever do an episode on this story about the recording of Rocket Queen. I just don't think that that's good for us because this is a family show. So we'll leave that one alone too. As soon as we get this on uh, the interwebs and when we're talking about this on Facebook, as we often do, you guys jump in and and have a lot to say about the different uh, topics that we discuss. There will be someone who will be like, well, tell the Rocket Queen story. And I'm just saying, no, we're not going to do that. I will say that I decided that we're going to move. I, I, it's funny that you went to Adler because normally you talk about Guns N' Roses, you start with Axel, right? Okay. I'm yeah. going to move the spotlight from Axel over to the guy in the top hat, our friend Slash. Is he your favorite GNR member? Who's your favorite member? I, I guess so. I, I like Izzy and wish Izzy had been in the band longer because I thought Izzy wrote terrific songs and actually Izzy and Axel grew up together. And so I think they would have been a terrific songwriting team. Um, I I do think that slash is a great guitar player. I I think Duff's really interesting. Duff McKagan has a financial consulting business now. Do you know that's a thing? (laughs) Like old rock stars doing financial consulting. But he got sober and like decided to explain like how to get rich. To, so he he has like a thing like, you know, obviously he has a book just like Slash had a book. And now um, he's like, I'll also tell you about your 401k. Yeah, I do know that the reason I like Slash, my favorite thing, fact about Slash, you're going to tell me something I'm, I'm sure I haven't heard before. My favorite fact about Slash is he recorded most of his guitar solos for Usual Illusion 1 and 2 laying on his back in like a studio by himself, kind of like everyone else like did like Axel did, you know, you, everyone did like isolation, everything like he did the solos by himself. You have left out the fact that he was very high on heroin the entire time. That, I, I didn't think yeah. that was a question. Things. <laughs> well, duh. Why would I say that? He was also wearing the hat. These are things we assume about slash. Okay. So uh, re- before I jump into this story, I will tell one, almost personal story about an encounter with slash. I wonder if you remember this. So do you remember friend of the old pod? Uh, Mark and I have had several podcasts together, but friend of our old pod, uh, Rob fee, who now uh, works for Marvel and Disney. Yeah. So Rob fee, uh, at one point told me he knew slash. Do you remember this? No, I don't remember this at all. So I I don't even remember how this came up, but we basically realized that we were both going to go to this Aerosmith show at which Slash was going to be opening with the snake bit. Wow. Weird. And so it's a little bit out of town. So we both drove, and I text him when I get there, thinking, because he kept bragging about how he was had been hanging out with Slash on tour, I keep thinking he's going to invite me back to the trailer. So I'm texting him at the venue, and then he just responds to the text with a picture of him with Slash with no invitation. Yeah. He's just like clearly backstage with Slash. He's like, yeah, no, man, life is good. I'm back here. You're not. Um, I'm not putting my name on the line for you at all. But uh, no hard feelings. I probably wouldn't have done it either. And and Rob has gone on to some great things. Like I said, I think he is is making Spider-Man comics. It's uh, unreal. Um, oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's actually what he's doing now. It's like writing storylines for Spider-Man comics for Marvel. All that to Saul say. Saul Hudson. I'm ready for the Saul Hudson story. Well, before we get to him, we actually have to start somewhere else uh, in the time period in which the story takes place, which is the movie theater. Let's go to the movies for a second. In 1987, which is the year Appetite for Destruction comes out, there's yeah. there's a movie that came out. Let's see if you remember this movie. Start a guy named who was would later go on to be a U.S. governor. His name was Arnold Schwarzenegger. 
Yeah, the Predator. The name of the movie Term, was uh, yeah. The name of the movie was Predator. She says the jungle just came alive and took him. We cannot see it. No blood, no bodies. We hit nothing. But it sees the heat of our bodies and the heat of our fear. Whatever it is out there, it killed Hopper, and now it wants us. It kills for pleasure. He will skin the lion. It hunts for sport. He's killing us one at a time. We're all gonna die. But this time, it's picked the wrong man to hunt. If it bleeds, we can kill it. An American yeah. science fiction action horror film. That's a lot of modifiers. Uh, directed by John McKiernan, written by Jim and John Thomas, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger as the leader of an elite paramilitary rescue team on a mission to save hostages in guerrilla-held territory in Central America who encounter the deadly predator, a technologically advanced alien who stalks and hunts them down. Now, yes, do you Great movie. have you ever heard the story? Uh, yeah, what's your relationship with this movie, first and foremost? Okay, so I love this movie. I loved Alien versus Predator. I loved all those weird movies afterwards um as well that were totally strange so so that's my stuff and i i really thought you know i didn't like terminator as much but like i liked him i like uh kindergarten cop and twins and jingle all the way like i like arnold's terrible movies you know so do you know where the idea for predator came from no i don't know that so this is the story and this is a little bit like a hollywood bedtime story as opposed to a rock and roll bedtime story following the release of rocky 4 there was a joke that started circulating in hollywood that rocky balboa had run out of opponents so they would have to in the fifth film make him fight an alien so Jim and John Thomas thought that was funny and they decided to write a screenplay based on the idea of fighting an alien and they originally called it Hunter because the original idea was what is it like to be hunted, right? Like if you are going, instead of you hunting an item or you hunting an animal or you hunting an alien, what if the alien is hunting you? So oh, yeah. So that that's what they ended up doing. So it, you know, this movie was noteworthy for several reasons, and I think it's important just because we are. Uh, this story all takes place in the late '80s. Spending a little time here makes sense, even though we are really a music rock and roll podcast. Was Carl so, Weathers in that movie? Right? Uh, I believe he was. Yeah, the guy, the guy from yeah, right the the guy from the Rocky movies, Apollo and, Creed. Yeah, and I, as I know him, um, yeah. Happy Gilmore's uh, golfing coach. So yeah. a call was put out when they decided to make this movie on. Uh, how are we going to make this alien look awesome? And and the look of the Predator alien is very important to this story, and that's why we're spending time here. So ultimately, they call Stan Winston, who was the visual effects guy on the original Terminator, and so he'd already worked with Schwarzenegger, right? They, they'd had another, they'd had guys come in and draw who, what they were going to make the Predator look like, and they were like, this is just not right. So they end up hiring Stan Winston. He's on a plane ride with James Cameron, who made Alien. So this comes in later. You've already blown the punchline here that later there is an Alien versus Predator. He's sketching monster ideas on a plane with James Cameron. And Cameron says, you know what? I've always wanted to see a creature with mandibles. So, that, and that ends up being kind of a defining feature of Predator, right? Like these big, yeah, which is the creepiest part. Oh my God. Which is so creepy. Yeah. This freaked people out in 1987. The alien looked so freaky and there were so many yeah. optical effects in the movie that this film was actually nominated. Did you know this? It was nominated for an Oscar for visual effects, not for Arnold wow. Schwarzenegger's acting, but it was nominated for an yeah. Oscar. I didn't know that. It was released in June of 1987, and it became the number one 
movie at the U.S. box office in its opening weekend. It grows $12 million bucks opening weekend, which was second only to Beverly Hills Cop 2 for the calendar year of 87, which says something about movies in 87. It's crazy how cheap they were because $12 million now is not even like, that's like opening on two screens. <laughs> that's like yeah. an indie film starring Zach Braff makes $12 yeah. million dollars on its opening weekend. But it ended up grossing almost $100 million worldwide, which in 1987, obviously, by, you, can, you can do all the numbers and the translation there, and that's huge. There's been a lot of films since then about Predator, including a 2018 reboot that I highly recommend. It's hilarious. Uh, but more than that, it spawned this whole subgenre, right? There's all of this Predator stuff. There's Predator video games. There's Predator novels, like dozens of novels. And as you already mentioned... There is the spinoff where Predator jumps universes and fights Alien. And there's two Predator versus Alien movies, but we are not here to talk about Alien versus Predator. We are here to talk about Slash versus Predator. I have no idea what's happening. Okay, great. So let's talk about Slash. Hello, my baby. Hello, my honey. Is it like a cartoon thing? James Cameron going to come out with like some blue weird avatar bullshit (laughs) thing that we wasted our money on? So so let's talk about Slash for a moment, all right? He joins oh. us. Do you know the name of his first band? Uh, Axel's first band was Hollywood Rose. He was in a band in 81 called Titus Sloan. And in 83, he started a band called Road Crew, which was named after the Motorhead song, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, and Steve Adler was in that band. So they go they go all the way back there, right? Yeah. Do you know that Slash, Slash's mom used to date David Bowie? Really? Yeah, oh, he, yeah. He, I've heard that. He he talked about waking up like as a kid, even like waking up and like David Bowie's in his house with his mom. So do you think Slash's mom was mad when Axel hit David Bowie? I don't know. And they kind of became friends <laughs> after that. Like David Bowie and Axel were cool after that. It wasn't like the Vince Neil Motley Crue thing where Axel wrote a whole song about him being a douchebag. Like Axel and David Bowie were all right after that. So um, no, so we're at the Road Crew and Adler's in that band. All right, so keep well, going. And they, they need a bass player. And so they put an ad in the newspaper and they meet this guy named Duff McKagan. He's from Seattle or Portland. He's from the Pacific Northwest. Then yeah. they then they start auditioning singers, uh, including Ron Reyes, who was in Black Flag. <laughs> and they start working on material, including a song that eventually does become Rocket Queen. And then Slash disbands the group because they can't find a singer. And he also feels like Steven Adler does not work as hard as he and uh, Duff do. He then, with Adler, joins another band called Hollywood Rose. And that's where you got us, right? And and that band had a singer already named Axl Rose and a guitarist named Izzy Stradlin. And then he plays in a band called Black Sheep. And he also auditions for another band which i did not know this do you know who he auditioned for oh he did he auditioned for he auditioned for a great band he he auditioned for poison yeah that's right yeah he auditioned for poison and they didn't like him can you imagine a version of poison with slash instead of cc peniston or whoever no, cc peniston cc deville cc peniston was not in poison <laughs> oh my god but i mean come on like how significant in pop culture are these guys from poison uh, uh it's just for me it's like the fifth member of poison is type 2 diabetes <laughs> Brett, or hepatitis whatever the hell brett michaels you rock my world baby so before CC got hired, Slash auditioned for that band. And it's totally weird because Poison had like those day glow green flyers. Like they were always that band. Oh, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. yeah on, the, on the Sunset Strip, they had the, the flyers that let everybody know they were Poison, you know. But the girls liked them. 
Because they dress like chicks so I, more than all the rest of them. I also really want, if there's anyone listening who's great in Photoshop, if somebody wants to send us a Photoshop picture of Poison with CC Peniston as a member. <laughs> or Slash with big blonde hair. Oh, my God. Uh, okay, so in June 1985, by the way, that email address is wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. Um, yeah. in, in June 1985, Slash was asked by Axl Rose and Izzy Stradlin to join the newly founded Guns N' Roses. Duff McKagan, Steven Adler, they're replacing Tracy Guns. Yeah, what a drag for yeah. Tracy. And a few other guys. They play Los Angeles area nightclubs like the Whiskey A Go Go, the Roxy. This is all stuff you know, right? This is this is the legend of Guns N' Roses. And then and they start opening for larger acts in 85 and 86, and they make a little album in 87. And we all start yeah. to bow down to them as rock and roll royalty. But Yeah, they, they demo they demoed everything at Sound City, and when they actually when Geffen actually signed them, then Geffen sent them out the road on the road with Aerosmith. Guns N' Roses had the number one record in America opening up for Aerosmith who was trying to be sober. And I saw that tour and Guns N' Roses was awful. They were terrible. Anyway. So yeah. this sets the stage for where they are in 1989. Okay. So Predator comes out in the middle of 87. So does Appetite for Destruction. These guys go on a world tour. Everyone's talking about them. This album starts to blow up and then they come back and in 89, they take a hiatus in LA. Slash, at this point, has developed quite a bit of a drug problem. You hear about this more when you get to when you start to read in his autobiography and in other places about the recording of the Use Your Illusion albums. And for instance, like, what is your opinion of the song Coma? Oh, yeah. I love the long ones. That and Locomotive. It feels like you're in a coma, baby. I don't wanna. So, so Slash openly love, says he wrote that in a pure on heroin delirium. Yeah, I love that song. It's a, a great song. He says, "quote There's not a lot of technique." <laughs> if you, I, I, I like, uh, I like coma because it's like the chorus, like the one of the final choruses. It's like the you put on. It's the headphone song, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, right? And so the the chorus is done like with a chorus pedal. So like it's got crazy effects on it. That record, despite whatever, like that they put out both those records at the same time and totally weird craziness or whatever. That song Locomotive's fun because it's a very Rolling Stones cool song because you put on the cans, put on the headphones, and you can hear the very distinct different guitars from Izzy and Slash. They're playing two very different things that are very prominent. And um, I thought that record w- was mixed really well. And well, really so cool. you, Matt, you know, they wasted a whole bunch of time, but when they finally, <laughs> when they finally sat down to like, Oh my God, we have to get this record out. They did it in 36 days and it's yes. 36 songs. So they yes. literally did a song a day over that period yeah. of, a, of a month and a little bit. Um, yeah, and slash, that takes more than hero- that takes more than heroin, my buddy. Yeah, <laughs> my buddy. Uh, slash apparently also gives into Axel's demands for synthetic instrumentation, um, like no- November Rain and stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you know they were, they, you know, there's this whole push and pull, and we talked about this a little bit, kind of in passing in the Van Halen episode about synthetic instrumentation and keyboards and you know i mean anyone that kind of knows rock and roll knows that there this battle happens in the 80s right because you have new wave and you have the post 
post, I'm not saying post-punk, but post the punk movement, you have things start to happen in the 80s where people start to use things that are not pure instruments. And so there is, uh, there is a little bit of a reaction to that in certain corners of rock and roll. And so saying, hey, we're going to do things that are not produced right here in the studio that might be produced by machines is a decision that all these bands have to make. And, and some bands and some members are more pro uh, than others. So anyway, th- this is a rabbit trail around the story, but I think we have adequately set the scene that these guys uh, are doing a lot of drugs. Uh, Slash in particular is doing a lot of drugs. He's bored because this story actually takes place a little bit before they start that recording session. And he's hanging out in LA and he's drinking a lot of Jack Daniels and doing a lot of heroin. And he he admits 89 to 91, he was heroin was his thing. This is of note because Slash continues to play in the band, and this is around the time Steven Adler gets kicked out of the band, which you've already talked about with that famous uh, Farm Aid incident. You know, their whole thing about that was that Steven Adler couldn't kick his drug habit, right? Right. There's too many people in this band that are messing, dancing with Mr. Brownstone. That's Uh, what Axel said. They did four shows with the Rolling Stones, and that's what Axel said on stage. He was like, this is going to be with the last shows of Guns N' Roses. (laughs) I like. I used to have that sh- one of those shows on cassette, and I had the one where he said they were going to break up. <laughs> so weird. So, so th- this story gets a little muddy. The story where we're landing today. I'm ready. But it's during this period where Slash is spending a lot of time doing a lot of things and putting a lot of things into his body that he probably should not be doing. He starts having hallucinations because he's doing so much. He's at a golf resort in Arizona. And he starts doubling up on heroin and cocaine. He comes out of his hotel room and he starts running around and he's got no clothes on. Yeah, naked. That's great. Yeah. So he starts yelling that he's being chased, but the folks around him do not see evidence of what might be chasing him. Slash says, it's the predator. The Predator, with, quote, rubbery-looking dreadlocks, is chasing after me with machine guns and harpoons. Ah, and in a, drag. In an attempt to combat the creatures, Slash decides he's going to punch through a glass door, and then he ends up jumping back through the glass door naked, and then he decides he needs someone to protect him, and so in this hotel, he finds a maid while he is running around, and he starts to use the maid as a human shield. Which is what I would do, absolutely. Running through the hotel lobby and behind a lawnmower. And then he hides behind the lawnmower because he thinks behind the lawnmower the predator cannot get him. Yes. Okay, eventually the police are called. He sits down and gives a detailed description of his attack by the predator. He says in his autobiography, quote, I was still high enough that I told that story without a shred of self-consciousness. He just straight up tells the police, guys, you know about the predator, right? The predator has been chasing me, and it was all I could do to get away from the predator. I mean, I don't want want to glorify drug usage, but I tell this story because I think it does the exact opposite. Because how terrifying... Would it be to think that you were being chased by mandible munching predator with machine guns and harpoons? That was the level of excess that was happening in the Guns N' Roses camp. And this has been documented in multiple places. This happened. 
he uh, yeah. he got into the, a police into a police interrogation room and said, "Guys, the predator is after me, and I need your help." Yeah, paranoid delusions from lots of drug use is a drag because uh, that's that's kind of where you you have to stop. It's not really it's not really recreational use anymore. The habitual thing you've already ran through that red light. You're now like it's now part of the routine. And then it starts to affect your reality. And once it affects your reality and your ability to cognitive, cognitively understand reality, um, yeah, then you're hosed, man. There's like, you know, you're, you know. So, okay, so what happened? So he goes into police custody. Right. And, he's, <laughs> and he, he, so, he basically suffers no consequences from this. If, from what I can tell and from what I've researched, nothing happens. I mean, he was basically set free. So he, you know, outside of destroying some property, maybe, or paying some fines, he's, it's not like he really did anything other than embarrass himself. But it points out how great, I mean, remember, this was a band that a few years before this was, was labeled, like, as they're looking for a record label, is labeled as, the, quote, unquote, the most dangerous band in the world as, as a marketing ploy. This is what they're supposed to do. He's playing a part, and this is where you get into yeah. this whole idea about rock and roll and the the importance we assign it, and what people are, who's resp- you know, is the public responsible, and and what do they carry as an onus in situations like this? Like it's all a, a larger conversation. But I will say, this is you know, he does a few things like this. And then Adler is the one that gets kicked out of the band. So that shows you right. that right. shows you how high the threshold was. I mean, if you're going to kick somebody out of the band and it's not Slash, that's that's impressive. Yes, Slash uh, on record on camera said that before he was 21, um, and it might have been him and Adler. I can't remember which member it was. They were under 21. They were trying to get in the Rainbow, and they would. Sh- there was one night they showed up and it was Ladies' Night. And they couldn't get in. So Slash went home and put on a bunch of his mom's clothes and showed up and they let him in. So not only did he win with that insanity in the rainbow, which I've always wanted to go to my entire life. And and, and I hope to someday that that I'll get to go there. Um, they Slash has a booth. So it's not really his booth. But it was like in the early 90s, like that's where they all kind of hung out. And if you watch the videos, if you watch November Rain and, and a bunch of those, the rainbow is is present in all these videos. And they they let them shoot inside there, outside the exterior for free. They just did it because they were buddies. And and in that booth, it has the picture, like pictures from the November November Rain photo shoot, and it has the guitar, the Gibson Les Paul that he throws off the cliff that they then got and then put back together, and it's on the wall in the rainbow. So um, he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, I mean, as we've touched on, there's a, a, a lot of... We could do a spinoff podcast, and we've actually talked about it, uh, specifically yeah. and only about... Guns and Roses because <laughs> there's the literally like list of 50 crazy things Guns and Roses did between three years but this is yeah, one that I just thought was so unique and ridiculous and fun because it also really capitalized on the popularity of the of Predator and what a pop cultural thing that was we haven't really gotten to talk about like how rock and roll and Hollywood movies interplay and so it's a fun spot to be at yeah I think Guns and Roses is I, I think the idea that they are such an influence and such 
they're recognized as such an important band versus the juxtaposition of the actual amount of output that they had. I think, I think that is not weighed well. That's a really good point. Cause like, if you look at green day who like Bobby keys, who played saxophone on return to cinder and played like saxophone with the Beatles and Elvis and the stones, it's not in a rock and roll hall of fame, but green day is, but green day has more records than yeah. guns and roses does. Guns N' Roses has, what, less than a half dozen albums? I mean, do we count and Chinese democracy? That's really the question. That's it. Like, does it count? Like, does the spaghetti incident count? Yeah. You know, with the Charlie Manson songs? Yeah. Dude. <laughs> Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.